Welcome to episode 9 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. In terms of this week's major news stories, it emerges that businesses have been given access to the National Cybersecurity Centre's first ever advice on taking out cyber insurance. The cyber insurance guidance has been produced in consultation with a range of major stakeholders and industry partners after calls for expert technical advice on the growing cyber insurance market. The advice encourages organisations of all sizes to think about how insurance might help in the wake of a cyber attack and contribute towards existing risk management strategies. Questions to be addressed range from what levels of defence are already in place to whether the insurance covers the aftermath of an incident. Businesses rightly want to be as informed as possible before they invest, but when it comes to cyber insurance, there simply hasn't been enough information available up to this point. That's precisely why it's so important for the National Cyber Security Centre to offer its support by providing some clarity on the key issues to be considered. The British Insurance Brokers Association welcomes this guidance for businesses, affirming that good cyber security and suitable insurance go hand in hand. Insurance brokers themselves can provide support and advice to firms looking for cover, and in turn, businesses benefit from reducing the impact of disruption caused by cyber episodes. History tells us that companies who are the victims of cybercrime can be devastated by the impact. That's any business, by the way, whatever its size, and SMEs are especially vulnerable. Nearly 50% of UK firms have reported a cyber attack over the last year alone, but despite this, the take-up of cyber insurance by businesses remains pretty low. This National Cyber Security Centre guidance reinforces just how wide-ranging and serious the impact of a cyber attack can be, and why it's important to manage cyber risk and put cyber security measures in place. To this end, Digital Infrastructure Minister Matt Warman encourages firms to consider using programmes such as Cyber Essentials in order to make sure they have fundamental cyber security defences in place. Having insurance can help businesses with recovery if they fall victim to a cyber attack by reducing disruption to operations and providing financial protection. Organisations can find a range of tailored cybersecurity advice and guidance on the National Cyber Security Centre's website. Topics covered include mitigating against malware and ransomware attacks and securely managing the current increase in home working. Cyber insurance may not be right for everyone, and it can never replace basic good security practice. That said, businesses should consider the new guidance to help make the decision that's right for them. Authored by Emeritus Professor Adrian Beck of the University of Leicester, a new report commissioned by the ECR Retail Loss Group calls for retailers to leverage video analytics more strategically in order to control costs, improve operations and increase profitability. Supported by an independent research grant from business-focused solutions developer Genetech, the report offers practical advice for retailers on extracting maximum value from their video surveillance systems. Entitled Reviewing the Use of Video Technologies in Retail, the report has been produced in the wake of in-depth interviews and site visits with representatives from 22 retailers based in the US and Europe. These include some of the largest retailers in the world with collective sales of over $1 trillion. For all of you fact fans out there, that's equivalent to approximately 12% of the total US and European retail market. The report neatly summarises the ways in which video systems in general, and video analytics in particular, are being deployed across retail businesses, including their use by legal teams for health and safety compliance and monitoring slip, trip and fall incidents. It also covers business intelligence applications such as improving customer service through better staff response times and product availability, generating heat maps and customer dwell times, people counting and queue monitoring. Given the need to extract value from across today's retail organisations, a key recommendation of the research is the appointment of a video czar, 
with overall responsibility for the strategic oversight of video systems deployed across a given business. While video technologies have been used in some form or other in retailing for over 40 years now, the research finds few examples of retailers where its role, purpose and capability to contribute towards business success has been clearly articulated. As Adrian Beck points out, video analytics is a technology with a broad-ranging and rapidly evolving capability. But what seems clear from this research is the need for explicit leadership, greater application across retail functions, the improved integration of video technologies with existing systems, and better alignment of video system design with organisational objectives. It's fair to state that across the years, video has become an even more indispensable tool for the whole business, not just the security team. With multiple and disconnected retail buying units and departments all voicing different data needs, technology providers have historically responded with siloed custom solutions that add cost and effort, while reducing return on investment and scalability. By adopting a more holistic approach, and one that's driven by a centralised vision and direction, all stakeholders can become aware of available solution capabilities, such as tailored dashboards for each department, in order to help drive better engagement and return on investment. Many commentators observe that this has to be a key focus for retailers moving forward. This landmark report provides an essential guide to asset protection and loss prevention leaders on how to proactively manage video and the data it creates. It not only promotes ways of applying critical thinking to the use of video analytics, but most importantly clears the path on ways they can start to shape a company-wide approach that enshrines video as more than just a tool for security, but rather an asset for the whole company. Our first guest on the Security Matters podcast this time around is Richard Jenkins. Richard is the CEO at the National Security Inspectorate, the certification body for the security and fire protection sectors here in the UK. Having graduated with a degree in economics from Durham University back in 1978, Richard then worked across several sales and marketing roles before becoming process improvement consultant for MITCOR in May 2006. He subsequently worked at the IKEA Group and Steelcase before becoming CEO at the NSI in March 2014. Earlier this week, I chatted with Richard about numerous subjects, among them developments in standards and also the future role of certification bodies. Richard, thank you for joining us on the Security Matters podcast. For those readers of Security Matters who may not be familiar with the National Security Inspectorate, could you outline the NSI's role in the security sector? Yes, Brian, certainly. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. It's a great uh, pleasure to be with you today. NSI is a third-party certification provider to the security, fire and safety sector services. And what that means is that we inspect around about 1,800 companies across the UK every year against the codes of practice and standards that they choose to be approved to. We're an independent, not-for-profit organisation. It means we don't have any shareholders or any influence on our activity. And we try really, really hard to give an honest, independent opinion about those businesses that we inspect, pulling them up on items where we think is appropriate and ensuring that the industry, the professional industry as a whole, or those that we approve, are doing what it says on the tin. We're a UCAS accredited as a certification body, which we too get the uh, wire brush treatment, as some people have been quoted as calling it, from the uh, inspector of inspectorates, if you like. And we concluded that uh, for in July this year, just as we've done in the last few years. We've been around since about 1971 and initially in the specialising in the secure, electronic security intruder alarm space. And of course, the name NACOS is still well known and used, even though we lost that name as a business some years ago. We were joined by the Man Guarding Inspectorate around about the year 2000, when we became known as NSI or National Security Inspectorate as we are today. And in the last 15 years or so, we've grown a relationship also with, uh, in particular, BAFE in the fire sector 
and we're probably we we, we carry more base approvals against BAFE schemes than any of the other um, players in the marketplace. Our mission, of course, is to maintain high standards in the sector for buyers of commercial and domestic um, security systems and users of guarding and security services. So our stakeholders, as I mentioned already, BAFE, but in the security area, intruder alarm, the principal stakeholder, I'd say, is the NPCC. And in the guarding sector, we are contracted by them, but we have I would say we have a stakeholder relationship with the security industry authority as a provider or an assessor for the approved contractor scheme. We've taken the view over the last few years that you know continual improvement is the name of the game. We can always do things better. If people are honest, they know they can always do things better. And it's our job to kind of shine the torch on those areas where we think we can deliver most value to those businesses. And most of them say, do you know what, Richard? When we came on board... You know, we we thought we argued a lot internally about whether it would be value for money. And then, you know what, my colleague here won the argument and here we are. And a year later, you know, we just can't get your NSI inspector off our backs. And without him, we would be nowhere. He's been he's done a great job. So I'm very, very proud of the team we have. They're all dedicated to the security sector. They're not playing 9001 in in the food industry or in shoe manufacturer one day and security the next. They are full-time security geeks. They love what they do. And uh, as a result, we get what we think is a great output from them, all-round team effort. In what ways has COVID-19 affected inspections, Richard? And what action has the NSI taken to maintain them during the pandemic? Yeah, well, that's, that's the, the obvious question, isn't it, Brian? But um, like everyone else, I think we were rabbits in headlights around about the uh, last week of March, first week of April. What is going on? What are we going to do? We got out the business continuity plan. We got out a thing called the Extraordinary Events Procedure, which is a sort of document in the in the bottom of the bottom drawer, which we're required to maintain uh, just to tick the boxes, as it were, for our accreditation. And of course, as with most other business continuity plans and Extraordinary Events Procedures, we pretty quickly discovered that, yes, they were written for Extraordinary Events, but um, extending extended pandemics weren't really one of them. You know, if you were talking about a major fire or a flood which subsided in a few days, then you could say, well, those uh, documents weren't weren't bad roadmaps. But what we've been in is a three-month car crash. During the car crash, it's not really up to the MOT inspector to come along and tell you that the last tire on the back of your car is showing a little bit thin on one side. It's not really very, very helpful, is it? So we decided early in April that we would, in fact, end of March, that we would abandon or suspend our auditing operations as of the 3rd of April. Just shut the thing down. And we took the view that the professional sector out there, the professional industry, was trying to sort itself out, get its feet back on the ground, dust itself down, and and go about doing its day job. And the last thing they wanted was someone to come along and tell them that there was a bit of a thin bit of rubber on the back of the car. So we furloughed our entire operations staff, initially on an expectation of between two and four months, not really knowing how long that was going to go. And we kept the back office, the guys who do the the heavy lift as far as relationship building with the BSI, with uh, standards development, with BSIA that we were working on at the time, various developments that we've got in the pipeline. We kept on the gas with those, but we just stopped the day job in operations. We took a view during middle of May that we felt things were settling and we felt that we could contribute 
uh, and get our get the car back on the road, the train running again from around the beginning of June. So we pulled all our teams back. We rescheduled a load of visits that were now past their expiry date, as it were. And um, we've got the thing restarted. Of course, it's meant that there have been quite a large number of businesses who were due the hard stop MOT in the world of certification, so-called recertification audit. They were due that in April, May and June. And we just on a blanket basis suspended and extended all of those for three months. So we'll get back to you when the panic's over. So where we are now is playing catch up, if you like, with those guys who, you know, would extension be provided would be their sell-by date to ensure that they maintain their certification going forward. One of the things we've done to help us with that is um, it's the it's the word the buzzword for the for the last calendar quarter and probably for the next is remote audit. So remote audit is something that our auditors, our financial auditors, did to us as it happens during May when they did our annual audit of accounts without actually physically visiting the site. And remote audit as a technique been around for. A while and it's obviously been around and effective for the time that um, collaboration tools like Teams, Zoom and a number of WebEx and a number of others. But of course, a crisis breeds fast learners, doesn't it? And in a crisis, you suddenly learn stuff that you could probably have learned quite a while ago, but you never quite got around to it. And so remote audit using these tools, something that we fast tracked, we were already there, but we just weren't practicing it. So we've learned a lot during the last two or three months. Uh, in terms of how to deliver that effectively uh, and get our job done with um, with convenience for ourselves and our clients and also enabling us to um, government guidance and social distancing. But there is one key point I'd like to make here, and that is that some in some quarters, remote audit has been put up as the panacea, as the hell that, you know, is going to solve all your problems and you're going to be able to get yourself recertificated and life's a breeze. And we kind of put our foot down and we said, look, there is some stuff that you just can't do on the end of a phone line or the end of a video link. You can't talk to security officers on the ground and get a feel for the way life really is when uh, you're doing it on the end of a, a line that's a few hundred miles long. You can't physical stuff regarding the installation of hardware and setup and configuration of software on remote, on systems that have been installed and on other distant sites if you don't dip sample them and go and see it with your own eyes. So we've laid out very, very clear guidance for our auditors that the first thing they're not to do is put themselves or their colleagues that they're visiting at risk, but that we do expect that in order to maintain a good, sound, robust indicator of quality, that is certification, that we will require to deliver physical audits as well as remote audits. So we've come up with the phrase blended audit. And the question is, how much of a blend or what blend do you want? There is a degree to which a remote works very, very well. We know that. We've been doing it almost completely on um, the relevant sites or with the relevant subject matter, which is principally quality management systems for the last six weeks. And we've been doing physical visits where they're necessary for installation, sampling, and for guarding um, the guarding operatives in the field. And our approved businesses get that. They get that they want to be holding a trusted and recognized approval. And they get that our auditors are kind of a sort of an extension of their own quality team. 
and you know it's wholly reasonable that they give us access and in turn you know we respect social distancing rules we respect guidance and we deliver a, a complete and not a partial job of course we lost two months of production haven't we and so our our commitment to our approved companies uh, who are all running on a what i would describe as a three-year mot cycle so we do independent servicing along the way and when we do the big shot at the end of the three-year period and that three-year period they may be halfway through it they may have just started with a full research visit in G- january 2020 wherever they are we will catch up on their audit programs before the next big hit so our approved businesses are not going to lose out in terms of audit time in terms of attention that we're able to give them but we can't do it all at once so we will do it during the current cycle as we look ahead to a post-covid world richard yeah. What opportunities do you see opening up for installers and guarding services providers within the sector? Yeah, well, this is an interesting one. And of course, you know, I, I start from the point that every time there's a, a crisis in life, you learn something that you weren't expecting to learn. And you find new ways of working, which might have been invented, but had never been put into practice because nobody could quite get their, their head around the value. So this is yet another one of those. It's a pretty significant major one. We're hopefully not going to see another one of these in my working lifetime. But um, what I think we will see is yet closer partnership and collaboration between the private sector and how they do their work. And I'm quite sure there'll be a lot of scribes in the background refining those continuity plans for the future. I think cyber is a sort of creeping giant, isn't it? You know, it's never going away. And the industry needs to recognize that uh, and wake up. They need to, we need to address cyber. We need to be cyber sensitive. And I would suggest that whilst the know-how is out there, perhaps this major event that we're all experiencing now is going to push us more towards technology because technology means more remote working in in different ways. And more remote working means more use of technology and more use of technology means more cyber risk. So whether you're an installer or an integrator or an operator of kit, you're going to have to be cyber sensitive. And the point is that the, the hardware is a, is obviously a huge part of that and, and, and the software it carries. But the installer is the interface. The guarding officer is the interface between the, the real world and the technology. So we've done a lot of work over the last two years with the BSI on their cyber for installers guidance. And what we're doing right now is looking at that and seeing what we can do to introduce that as a sort of bolt-on if you like, to the NACOS um, security systems standard or scheme that we we deliver. And we just think it's natural, in a sense, it's natural evolution, but it's sort of, it will be accelerated because because of the, um, the COVID experience. And I think in the guarding sector, the guarding services, flexible for a lot of industry, whether you're a big player or a minor player, flexibility is the name of the game. They carry what they consider to be sufficient percentage and they flex the rest. So, the way the labor supply chain works is very, very key. And we introduced last year, uh, earlier this year, we announced it, but we introduced a code of practice for labor providers and labor provision in the sector. Um, and we see the, uh, an uplift in the quality and competence of those agencies, those labor providers, in having pools of resource that they can quickly deploy with pools of resource that are well tuned in to what they need to be able to do when they arrive on site um, 
to take on assignment instructions and pools of resource that we know are bona fide, don't contain rogue labor. The final thing I'll just quickly mention, Brian, is that I call here the classic ARC concept. So as most people in the industry know, uh, even if it's a little bit remote from them, is that the, you know, in terms of ARC security and the, and the continuity of service that an alarm receiving center can deliver to its market, the concept of a backup um, ARC, sort of semi-mothballed, ready to go at a moment's notice when this one breaks down. And of course, this pandemic that we just had, it wasn't a case of this one breaking down, was it? It was nothing to do with the IT not working. It was to do with a lockdown and the and the challenges and risks people, individuals and businesses were carrying with regard to their people. So I think, you know, the dusting down of the pandes- pandemic risk manual is going to be quite a big thing. And, you know, just maybe a duplicate arc in the background actually isn't the model for the future. We'll see what happens there. And one final point, I would say key workers. So if you think way back to the end of March, everyone's running around wondering what is a key worker? How am I able to get to my monitoring station because the police won't let me by? How am I going to go and do a key bit of maintenance because I know the um, the installation in a property that I'm looking after is telling me it needs attention, but I'm not allowed to get there. So this whole question about who is a key worker and what are they here for was was kind of up in the air. And we took a view um, having spoken with several of our stakeholder partners, we're just going to push it out there as to what we think it is. And unless anyone contradicts us, we're going for it. And we just tried to put some clarity in the marketplace and some some confidence really for installers particularly to feel that they could get in their car and go somewhere if they had good reason. So I think, again, on reflection, for the future, there's going to be a better understanding of what key workers are and possibly a grading system that says, well, these guys are, you know, number one of the 10 on the scale, and they were allowed a certain scope of, of freedom to operate. And there, But there will be others which aren't quite so hot. So, you know, I would say that uh, an NSI auditor or an, an auditor uh, of uh, security systems and services is probably a fairly important person. You don't want to be doing without them for too long, but they're probably not number one. But they might be down at, you know, on a scale of one to ten, they might be down at seven or eight. So there are plenty, plenty of industries uh, and activities which should be thought about and a bit with a bit more care and possibly a grading, a grading approach might be a little bit smarter for the future. And what developments in standards are currently in the pipeline within the sector, Richard? Yeah. So, well, I would say I mentioned already the, the cybersecurity code of practice that BSI have been working on for some time now. And we are seriously looking at that as a as a bolt-on, initially bolt-on code or scope within the, the, our NACOS scheme. I would imagine that within 18 months that becomes mandatory. Uh, it's highly likely that that's the direction of travel we'll go. We've also been asked by the, the um, police to take a more active role in reviewing the current standards for... Um, detect CCTV detector activated alarms. And there's a belief out there that the take up of this um, alarm solution has been very modest in comparison with what the police originally thought it might be. And on reflection, I think they've come to the view that the complexity that was built in may have been fit for purpose at the time these things were first introduced, but time marches on, technology marches on even quicker. And the, the codes of practice and standards, you know, 
almost by definition are always going to lag a bit, but they need to be revisited. So we think that within the next six to 12 months, there's going to be a, quite a significant shift in what the, in the standards that the police is referencing in their alarms, in their alarms guidance document, such that it kind of widens the flexibility for users to choose the type of alarm activation technology they want to use. So that could be quite a big shift in the in the sector, as a new technology always brings brings expected and also some unexpected changes. In the guarding area, um, touched on it earlier, but the the labour provision code of practice. We think that the sophistication of the labour provision, um, you could say agency labour provision in the guarding sector, the sophistication of that is going to grow rapidly as demands for flexibility grow. And the, there are early signs of that already, professionalisation of that area. And so we, we're looking to support that as best we can. And finally, Richard, do you believe that certification bodies have a long-term role to play in the future security landscape? And if so, on what basis? Yeah, yeah. So, so bearing in mind, here we are. Uh, where are we? We're uh, we're early to mid August, and we are looking back on the last few months of lockdown here in UK, and we are thinking to ourselves, well, what's going to happen to the new applications that we get in the door here at NSI during this lockdown? You know, because people are far too busy panicking about what else is going on in the world to think about certification. The irony that you never expected was that the level of interest that we've had to put on ice effectively for a few months now has been has been far greater than a typical year so uh, a bit like some stats curves that I won't mention but um, the rate of interest has been significantly higher than normal so that tells me that the market is feeding back to installers and guarding operators that certification is 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 a valuable proxy for judging the competence and, and quality of service that you can expect in, in the sector. I do also think that we'll be continuing in the technology area or in, in, um, in systems, there will continue to be this sort of creep towards polari- of polarization in the market. So the pol- poles being plug and play at one end where you can buy anything anywhere on the net and install it yourself and consider you've got some security. And at the other end, the importance of sound risk assessment, sound system design, and then ongoing maintenance isn't going away. It's just not going away. And the place that the professional market has in delivering that, I think, is unquestionable. Whilst that market chooses to use the third-party certification model as its proxy for competence, um, which is a pretty loud and clear signal we're getting at the moment, then we can't see that particular dynamic changing very much at all. Returning to the news now, and the government has announced that 35 police and crime commissioners are to receive funding from a £25 million scheme energised to crack down on burglary and theft in crime hotspots. The Safer Streets Fund aims to stop offences that blight communities and cause misery to victims from happening in the first place. 
Following on from a bidding process, grants of up to £550,000 will be provided to police and crime commissioners in England and Wales for projects designed to improve security in those areas particularly affected by acquisitive crimes such as burglary, vehicle theft and robbery. The money will go towards measures proven to cut crime. These include simple changes to the design of streets such as locked gates around alleyways, increased street lighting and the installation of new CCTV systems. The funding will also be used to train community wardens, deliver local crime prevention advice to residents and establish neighbourhood watch schemes. Speaking about the fund, Home Secretary Priti Patel has stated, I will not stand by while criminals inflict fear and misery on our communities. That's why I set up the Safer Streets Fund to ensure we're doing all we can to prevent people falling victim to these crimes. Persistent street crime and burglary have a corrosive effect on a neighbourhood, leaving people apprehensive about leaving their homes and afraid of what they might encounter when they return. Simple modifications like better street lighting or CCTV can do much to prevent crime. It follows that projects involving them should have a big impact on the communities hardest hit by burglars, robbers and villains in general. Acquisitive offences are the crimes that the public are most likely to encounter. They're estimated to cost society billions of pounds every year. There's much strong evidence to suggest that these crimes can be prevented by tactics that either remove opportunities to commit crime or otherwise act as a deterrent by increasing the chances of an offender being caught. The Home Secretary first announced the Safer Streets Fund in October last year and police and crime commissioners were invited to bid for funding in January of this year. Bids were evaluated against a set criteria and bidders asked to outline a plan to reduce crime within a given local crime hotspot, demonstrating value for money, evidence of community engagement and long-term sustainability. As they're rolled out, each initiative will be assessed to help inform future government investments. The Safer Streets Fund itself forms part of the government's concerted actions to tackle crime. As many of you will know, the government is recruiting 20,000 additional police officers over the next three years, while the amount of funding available to the policing system for 2020-2021 will increase by more than £1.1 billion to reach a total of £15.2 billion. The total funding awarded in this latest announcement is £22.4 million. The remaining funding will be spent on supporting successful areas to deliver their bids, evaluation of the Safer Streets Fund's impact and other activities underpinning its aims. The British Standards Institution has announced the latest findings from its quarterly review of the top global supply chain security, business continuity, food safety and fraud and also corporate social responsibility threats and trends. Powered by the Supply Chain Risk Exposure Evaluation Network tool, the BSI found that while COVID-19 concerns remain at the top of the list, its effect has created a number of secondary disruptions and risks which are impacting supply chains, including migration and cargo theft. Long-held practices around supply chain resilience have been completely upended, it seems. As organisations begin the process of rebuilding their supply chains following the COVID-19 pandemic, the BSI's latest screen data indicates that, in addition to the virus, they face new and additional threats. Those threats underscore the overriding need for business continuity planning. When the BSI issued its annual Supply Chain Risk Insights report at the beginning of March, the global business impact of COVID-19 was still in its initial stage. As the organisation predicted, the outbreak has led to complex and varying responses by individual governments and organisations, in turn wreaking havoc on supply chain continuity. The BSI's latest findings show that a rise in COVID-19 cases is leading global supply chain hubs such as Bangladesh and India to lock down, in turn creating supply chain pinch points. This has duly resulted in delays to manufacturing and global shipping and could likely impact specific sectors. As virus outbreaks continue, a country-by-country approach to containing the virus is expected, which could increase temporary disruptions to supply chain movement. One area where supply chain risks exist outside of the COVID-19 pandemic is in cargo theft. While there's an increase in the theft of medical devices such as PPE and ventilators, the items most associated with the COVID-19 pandemic, Screen also reports an increase in thefts of particular goods across the world. 
There's the theft of consumer goods such as cleaning solutions. Alcohol and tobacco thefts have increased in certain regions. Food and beverage thefts continue to lead in Asia. And electronics remain a top target in Africa and also across the Middle East. Back in March, the BSI found a high rate of stowaway incidents in Europe and the Americas. This trend has continued, with weakened European economies forcing migrants to go on travelling in order to find work. Also back in March, the BSI highlighted an expected rise in additional security challenges and disruptions that trafficking would create within the Americas. As the year progressed, Screen noted a particular increase in labour trafficking, with Asia and the Middle East involved as well. The BSI expects this trend to increase as the loss of livelihood puts pressure on families to consider other means for generating income. The BSI's dedicated team of analysts monitor and analyse a wide range of geographic risk and incident data sources to produce risk ratings for 25 proprietary risk indicators across 200 plus countries. The team is constantly updating and refining its intelligence, making sure risk ratings reflect the situation pertaining on the ground. Our second guest on episode 9 of the Security Matters podcast is John Davis, the Managing Director at Access Control Solutions Specialist TDSI. John has served in this role since 2003. He graduated with a BSc degree in chemistry from the University of London in 1979, subsequently taking on sales and marketing roles with Core Laboratories, Bovar, Zellweger Analytics and Voice Integrated Products before joining TDSI and leading a management buyout in 2005. TDSI is recognised as one of the UK's leading developers of integrated access control systems, offering an extensive range of readers, controllers and software solutions. Among those topics we discussed are the future of security for smart cities and also the ongoing development of security as a service offerings. During the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been much discussion about the future of access control, John. Much of the debate has focused on contactless access control to avoid contamination and infection, for example. Could you offer your views on this subject? The COVID or coronavirus situation has resurrected a lot of things that were going on already within the access control world with respect to contactless technologies. I mean, the card reader situation, yeah, that is, yeah, that's been contactless ever since access control started using cards and cards and readers. And we've also had customers, particularly in the health sphere and pharmaceutical fear who have wanted to use contactless access uh, technologies, particularly when protecting laboratories and trying to ensure that there's no cross-contamination between one laboratory uh, and another with, uh, with, uh, with scientists moving, moving around that could potentially affect the results of product development uh, yeah, that's going on within, uh, within those facilities. But since the advent of um, our good friend, the uh, coronavirus, um, at the at the beginning of this year, everyone went into lockdown and then people started scratching their heads. Okay, well, how do we make sure that when we do come out of lockdown and we go back to work, that we can make sure that the employees who are coming back feel safe because we moved from a situation, a marketing situation on the consumer side where you had the old fear of missing out, FOMO, to a situation this year when we're going into lockdown and still as we're out of lockdown, fear of going out. People are frightened um, of of going out and resuming the way they were running, conducting their lives before uh, the advent of the the coronavirus. So, yeah, in the access control world, we've just been sort of dusting off the technologies that we already have and actually saying to people, look, if you use these technologies effectively, you, know, you can provide 
that comfort level uh, to your uh, customers and to visitors to your facilities that you are a that you're exercising due care and attention uh, towards your employees towards visitors and you're trying to minimize the amount of transmission potential transmission um, of the virus uh, between between people because you know as the government said and, and public health england and the chief scientific advisor it's all about keeping the r rate down keeping the rate down uh, at, at which the um, the virus is transmitted and that needs to be you know, kept below one so here at tdsi uh, we, we've been you know, sort of working an awful lot more um and letting people know about what we're doing for example you know, using uh, bluetooth low energy readers and mobile phones uh, in order to gain access uh, into buildings and without uh, without touching um, a, a reader. On the physical door side of things, um, a lot of organisations are now looking at combining access control with automated door opening systems so you physically you know, don't need to touch the door or if you have to touch the door you know, what can you do with respect to um, the metals or, or, or coatings that can be put onto door furniture um, that will minimize the transmission of um, uh, of the virus equally uh, here in our facility we used to use uh, the green mushroom push button request to exit buttons on 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 our doors getting out of the office we've changed all those now to um, infrared touchless request to exit buttons so we don't physically have to touch uh, anything and as a as a company as well we've introduced our own facial detection reader with a thermal uh, sensor the uh, the view pass reader so again that just sort of gives organizations the, the peace of mind knowing that they can have a piece of technology that will check the uh, temperature level of uh, of, uh, of people coming into into their facility with regards to yeah, okay if it's above a certain threshold yeah, either letting that individual know or letting uh, the organization know that uh, you, know, you need to you know, take that individual uh, to to one side and give them a proper uh, temperature check um, and also at, at, uh, at TDSI pretty early on in, in, in lockdown we launched a track and trace uh, application because access control systems uh, by their very nature you know exactly uh, who is in the building and who's in what areas um, of, uh, of the building and, and and who's not and so if an organization uses our track and trace application and if an employee uh, advises their their employer hey look I'm, I'm going to be uh, off sick uh, I've got it looks as though I've got uh, coronavirus uh, symptoms the uh, that organization if they're using our uh, software and systems can go into the system and say okay I want to know where Joe Bloggs was over the last five or seven days and who was in those areas or who went through those doors that Joe Bloggs went through uh, so you can actually then tell those people, um, look, you have been potentially in contact with a door or in an area where someone um, has had the go and get yourself uh, tested. So we launched that, oh gosh, yeah, as I said, pretty early on. We launched that in May, uh, early early June. And, and we've done that as a, as a free service to all our um, uh, XGARD and GARDIS software users. So they can they can download this application from our uh, our website um, and augment their systems uh, in order to enhance uh, again the peace of mind that the people have uh, coming back to coming back to work. In a similar vein, John, what about the future of security solutions in general in a post-COVID environment? There's been much talk of security as a service in terms of being a cost-effective solution which is flexible and adaptable to changing needs, for example. What's your take on that, John? 
Yeah, the whole, um, we, we've been looking uh, a lot, or there's been a lot of uh, debate uh, and, and work done in the security industry over the last three or four years in particular about offering security services as a service. So, yeah, so yeah, FAAS, uh, so security as a service. It started out on the video side of things, and, and, and it was very, very prevalent um, uh, early on uh, in the United States, and access control is, uh, is no stranger to this now, so cloud-based access control systems and and services i think uh, or we think that there's going to be a lot more traction for that type of between manufacturers and systems integrators uh, and the ultimate end user because organizations yeah, end users uh, are going to want to know that their systems are, are, are always up to date this you know the, the coronavirus pandemic um, hit everyone by surprise you know particularly in the west are uh, the you know, people out in southeast asia and and, uh, and what have you they've been dealing with with sars outbreaks and mers outbreaks um in the in the in the 2000s and and, uh, and 2010s, but for the but for the Western world, uh, the, the the coronavirus thing is is, is really hit people um, as a big as a big surprise, and and so consequently, I think people are actually assessing the way that they have consumed services in the past and wanting to wanting to change them. So, you know, organisations and users want the system to be to be up to date. They want them to be able to be monitored remotely. They might not want systems integration companies going into their office environment but they want the latest technology they want to be safe and secure which is that can be managed remotely and and uh, yeah software or security as a, as a service video systems as a service access control as a service it lends itself very very much to offering or enhancing the security offer to to to, to fulfill that um, that new Need uh, from uh, from from customers. Another topic that's been front and centre of late is the subject of card cloning. John, how can end users ensure that their credentials are as secure as they need to be? Card cloning has been a very very big issue for for quite a long time actually, and uh, and I think end users will be yeah, they'll probably be shocked to know that you know, proximity cards and MyFair Classic cards um, they've been clonable for over ten years. And people have not really responded to it uh, or in the past. But in the last two, two or three years, more and more organizations are becoming aware of this uh, security flaw in, uh, in, the older, in the older technologies. And yeah, we at TDSI, we, yeah, we're, no, we're no strangers to that. We, we see uh, what we're selling a lot more MyFair Plus and, 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 uh, and, and uh, MyFair Desfire systems now or readers and reader technology than we were yeah, three, four years ago. We're hardly selling any proximity uh, cards now and, and, uh, and readers to, uh, to new installations, for example. And customers with the older technology, they're using dual card technology systems to transition from older systems to more secure credential credential technologies. Because uh, when when our sales teams and, and marketing people, when we actually show end users how easy it is to clone a proximity card or a classic uh, serial card, they're quite shocked. You know, we just say, look, you, know, you go on the internet, you can buy a, a, a cloning tool tool for, for $40. You can buy some cards and I can clone cards. Uh, and if you show them that in, the, in, a, uh, in, a, in a demo uh, situation in their offices, you go to the MD and say, okay, give me, give me a card. 
uh, and I'm going to clone. I'm going to clone the card. They said, "No, no, you can't do that." But, and you actually show them, and they're quite shocked. So I think the whole the the people are becoming a lot more aware of it because I think as uh, in the in the commercial world. Um, a lot, a lot of people are becoming more aware of everything cyber uh, and and uh, and uh, cyber attacks and the incidents of of cyber uh, cyber attacks within uh, within industry and people trying to steal intellectual properties uh, from uh, from organisations or, or or take data. So yeah, the, the the access control industry is is, is doing its part to uh, you know, ensure that the encryption technologies that we're using on the new credentials that we uh, that we provide people are as uh, un- uncrackable as we as we can possibly make them and security for emerging smart cities john i know this is a particular area of interest for you how can such security be designed to more effectively deal with today's evolving threats and issues among them pandemics civil unrest and acts of terrorism yeah i think that the whole if you the, the if you look at the whole built environment and and, and the, the issues that the countries cities not just organizations have to deal with uh, these days that there are um, a lot of people um, unfortunately out there who want to get rich quick for want of a better phrase and and, and there will be up to no good um, and uh, trying to intimidate people and I think with the the advent of technology and moving away from proprietary systems of 20, 30 years ago and the advent of IP, it's becoming a lot easier for managers of organizations or, or, or managers and, and mayors of cities to be able to get their systems uh, to talk to each other, to be able to to look at data that was in different uh, databases. So whether that be you know, the incidents of traffic accidents or robberies or you know, any of that sort of uh, you know, police or accident-oriented accident uh, uh, data, it all, it all exists in, in, in separate databases and, and so things were going on but um, it was very very difficult to try and establish the relationship between different things happening within an organi- uh, you know, you know, within a within a city and where should the city best allocate the, 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 the limited resources it has in order to ensure that it's tackling the issues that citizens within that city um, are, are having to deal with and I think the, the 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 whole ethos when you're looking at sharing data and creating algorithms or looking at relationships between different databases it's all about more or less looking at not just security but but primarily looking at the safety aspect of, of of our lives how do we live our lives more safely and how can we bring technology to bear um, and whether that's physical technology through IOT sensors or whether that's through analyzing data in different different databases and trying to learn what that data is uh, is telling us there's we have a a lot more opportunities or to, 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 to look at those relationships now because the cost of sensing technology is coming down, the cost of computing technology is coming down. And as the routine is becoming more and more the realm of 
is sort of artificial intelligence. Um, and so the systems are doing the routine stuff. The people who are monitoring those systems, we've got more time to actually yeah, look at what the relationships are between uh, you know, be, you know, between different things happening. Um, and, and so um, enable managers of, of, uh, of cities to be able to, to manage their cities a lot more effectively and a lot more safely. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Richard Jenkins of the National Security Inspectorate and also John Davis at TDSI for their valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for this show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters, where you can view our podcasts and read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can also access our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our weekly e-news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag securitypod. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.